my Govan, and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video, I want to talk about something that occurred to me while I was listening to uh, the Tolkien professors exploring the Lord of the Rings. He was discussing how, interestingly enough, while Aragorn was called Estel for a long time, his reliance on Estel seems to have been a development within the story of the Lord of the Rings. He was kind of touching on that point. And, uh, well, he didn't say it in exactly those terms, but that is definitely the way that my mind went, because I suddenly realized that he kind of starts on a scale from Boromir to Gandalf, a little closer to Boromir in the way of his thinking, and over the course of the story becomes much more like Gandalf in terms of thinking in terms of Estel rather than Omdir. And for those of you not familiar with the concepts of Estel and Omdir, I have a whole video on that which I will link in the description below. But the short version of it is both of these words mean hope in Elvish, but they mean hope in slightly different ways. And this comes from the Athrabeth, which is in the Morgoth's Ring volume of the History of Middle-earth. And in that text, Finrod Felagun tells Andreth, Amdir means kind of a, a hope based on facts known. It's like the idea that Based on what you know, you have a reasonable expectation that this is going to be the result. That's that kind of hope. Whereas Estel is not based on facts known so much as trust or faith. And usually, you know, you can kind of tell where this is going. This is going to be a trust or faith in Eru or God. So Estel is a much higher kind of hope in a sense, which is much more characteristic of the heroes and much less characteristic of the villains or, in Boromir's case, the semi-heroes, we might call them. So it's what I'm going to look at here is how Boromir and Gandalf kind of form two opposite ends of a spectrum on this and how Aragorn seems to move from closer to Boromir's end of that spectrum to Gandalf's end of that spectrum over the course of The Lord of the Rings. Before we get to the video, I'd like to talk to you about something new that I've discovered that may help you. One of the things that I'm interested in besides Tolkien is staying healthy and fit, and one of the areas that I've discovered that I've been lacking is my feet. And one thing that I've done recently to start helping my feet is wear barefoot shoes. What's a barefoot shoe, you may ask? Seems like a contradiction in terms. It's a shoe with many different qualities, but some of them include a wider toe box so that your toes can actually spread apart and do their natural thing, a very flexible sole so that your feet can use their natural range of motion, a very thin sole so you can actually feel the ground beneath you and your feet can adapt to what's going on and no drop between the heel and the toe so that you're not constantly at an elevated heel position, which has effects on your posture. I've started wearing these recently, and I really love them. These are from Zero Shoes. The name Zero is spelled with an X, as you can see. And they have an affiliate program, so I have a link in the description. If you want to try barefoot shoes for the many benefits that they may have, you can buy a pair, and it'll actually help out my channel. These that I have are the Prio. They also have a Prio New version, a Neo Prio Neo, which is a slightly updated version, but these work just fine for me. I love them, and 
ever since I started wearing them, I can't stand wearing normal shoes anymore because I can feel the <laughs> regular shoes crushing my toes together, and these don't. So I really like these. If you feel like you are interested in wearing barefoot shoes and you can find lots of videos on YouTube explaining the benefits and all that, one of the other cool things that Zero does as a company is when you buy their shoes, they will actually give you a bunch of videos and articles that uh, send you links to those that you can use to learn how to get into wearing barefoot shoes and how to transition from a normal shoe to a barefoot shoe. If you already walk around barefoot a lot at home and you know, don't wear shoes that often. It may not be that much of a transition, but it might otherwise. So that can be really helpful. So if you're interested in this, you know, take a visit to their website, check them out, see if you're interested in, you know, buying their products. And like I said, if you do, it does help my channel if you use the affiliate link in the description. Thanks a bunch. Now back to the video. First of all, to point out just a little bit of background on this, one of the points that the Tolkien professor made is that Aragorn's history as having been called Estelle in his youth is a very late development in his writing of The Lord of the Rings. It comes about when he does the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, which is in the appendices, and that is largely based on the fact that he ends up developing into this character who ends up mar marrying Arwen, which is a parallel to the marriage of Beren and Luthien, and this is a late development in his you know, working on the story. Originally, Strider, or Aragorn, was going to be Trotter, who was a hobbit. Arwen was a, herself a very late addition to the story, and it was only fairly late that Aragorn became this character who was going to be the king of Gondor and Arnor, you know, the descendant of the kings of old, and marry Arwen. So all of this comes about relatively late, certainly later than a lot of his development of Strider's character in the earlier parts of the story. So it makes sense that when we see him early on, he's not necessarily going to be reflective of this idea of Estelle or trust-based hope. And some more background to this, one of the things that uh, the Tolkien professor has been pointing out in a lot of the chapters with Boromir involved is that Boromir's character is very much the practical general. He has very practical suggestions every time he speaks up, you know, in the group. He's constantly saying things like, hey, y'all know I, I kind of grew up around in the mountains. I know what it's like. We should probably carry some wood up if we try to march over Karadras in case we need it to survive. Things of that nature. Very practical stuff. He also just tends to think more in a militaristic way, and one of the other things that we all know about Boromir is that he never really understands this idea of why we're trying to destroy the ring. He doesn't get the the real rationale behind the program, and it's never really stated explicitly in the story itself, but it is based on an Estelle type of hope. And one of the things that I talked about in my earlier video on Omdir and Estelle is that Boromir is very clearly an Omdir type of guy, at least for most of the story. He kind of realizes the error of his ways on his deathbed, but it's still not really clear how much he understands the Estelle-based nature of what they're trying to do. He just realizes that what he was thinking clearly wouldn't have worked because he was falling victim to the temptation of the ring, and he finally realized, oh, this is why we can't go down this route. So, Aragorn and, you know, 
Gandalf and Elrond and all these other people, they're all on board with the plan because in some sense they have Estelle, although it's not clear to what extent. And Aragorn seems a lot more practical-minded in the earlier parts of the story. Another useful contrast here is with Gandalf. Gandalf, whenever he's talking about things, will very infrequently say, here's the plan, here's what we're going to do, and here's why we ought to do it, and this is the practical basis for it. In the chapter, in the passages that Tolkien, the Tolkien professor brought up this idea of Estel, they were talking specifically about just after they come off of Karadhras, Gandalf is saying, hey, we can't really go south, that's just impractical, we need to go into hiding now, which means we need to go into Moria, which I kind of thought, you know, I had this feeling we were going to have to do anyway. So Gandalf always had this kind of intuition, and this is one of the things that comes up again and again and again with Gandalf. He's always got, my heart tells me, or, you know, a shadow fell on my heart. He's talking about his heart all the time, and these kind of intuitive ideas that he has that he can't necessarily back up with facts, logic, or anything that he can point to concretely in the world around him. It's just like he gets this sense of this is right or wrong. And this is a very strong characteristic of what seems to be his Estelle-oriented nature, where he's constantly thinking in terms of, this is just the way things ought to go, and I am trusting that that is correct. Now, Gandalf, of course, is uniquely possibly in a position to be receiving messages in a way that others are not, because he is neither man nor elf, but Maya, even though he is a limited Maya who's been incarnated in an actual physical body who can actually die, nevertheless, that may be a reason why he's going to be more receptive to something which is not even really intuition, but almost like inspiration, which he trusts. Elrond will say similar types of things, of course, but the interesting thing is that Aragorn will start saying similar types of things as the story develops. So, when we look at these two poles, we've got Boromir on this one end, where he's saying things like, hey, I have experience in this area, I think we ought to do this for these reasons. Gandalf will occasionally, you know, have his own reasons for things, like when he's saying, you know, we, we cannot be out in the open, we have to go now because the hunt is going to be on us and we've got to get into hiding. He will give reasons, but they're not always of the same exact practical nature of the things that Boromir will say. And much more frequently, Gandalf will be like, hey, I have this feeling in my heart that this is the thing we need to do. And it's just kind of like trusting the leader. You, you trust Gandalf, and he trusts that his own intuition, or whatever you want to call it, is correct in some way. He talks about the ring this way. He talks about what we, what they ought to do in their journey this way. He talks about you know, his sense that Saruman might be a problem in this way. It's constant. On this spectrum, in the early stages of the story, Aragorn is clearly much closer to Boromir in terms of the way that he thinks about problems. As an example of this, some of the earliest stuff that we get is Aragorn leading the hobbits through the wilderness between Bree and Rivendell, and during that, he's going to have conversations with Frodo and others several times where he's discussing what he thinks is going on, 
what he thinks they ought to do next, that sort of thing. So when they find a stone with G3 on it, he says, probably this means that Gandalf was here on the 3rd. You know, and he's using just the evidence that he has in front of him. That's not really a great example of Astell versus Omdir, because this is him reading the facts on the ground, trying to figure out what happened in the past, not what they should do. But then when it moves on to what they ought to do, he seems to move very much in the direction of, you know, I think our best course of action is this because this, this, this reason. So he says, you know, we have to cross this bridge, but we also need to stay in hiding. So we need to kind of avoid the, you know, Nazgul by staying in the woods and and taking a long circuitous route, even though that's kind of dangerous. And then he, you know, gets to a point where he realizes we've come a little farther out of our way than I wanted to. This is not ideal, but we're still going to get there and we've got to get back on track. But there's all these moments where, you know, he'll be explaining what he thinks they ought to do. And that's not to say that he doesn't have any Estelle here, but he's certainly thinking more in terms of a practical-minded scout guide rather than a, you know, mystic who is just trusting providential intuition or whatever you want to call it. Aragorn will continue to display this type of thinking as they go into their journey with the ring, because, of course, he and Gandalf are having this dispute as to which route they should take to get, you know, across the mountains. Gandalf is for Moria from the start, and he tells us, basically, that he has this sense that that's where they're probably going to have to go in the end, but he also says that, you know, he thinks they ought to do it because it would be hidden and it's the path least likely expected by the enemy and all these other things. Aragorn is basically like, "Mm, I've been there once, it's not a pretty place, and I don't want to go back, and I honestly think Karadhras is probably safer, and it's not until Karadhras basically shuts the door on him and says, nope, I'm going to snow you in if you try this, that he relents and says, okay, fine, I mean, we are kind of out of options now. Uh, So he's not trusting Gandalf's own sense of intuition, Aragorn does say in the conversation that he has this kind of premonition that, you know, if you enter Moria, Gandalf, beware. I think it's going to go badly for you. It's not clear if this is a new thing that happens in this conversation or if he had this sense before. Uh, And if it was something that he had had before, you could argue that this is kind of like a reverse Estelle-type thing going on with him for his reasoning for not going to Moria in the first place but there's no real evidence to think that it happened before that. It seems like this foreknowing kind of comes on him in the moment, as foreknowings typically do. Uh, So after Gandalf, of course, dies, we also see Aragorn wrestling a lot with all these different problems that he's kind of inherited now as the leader of the group. You know, he takes the group into Lorien against Boromir's advice, but Aragorn knows, of course about Lorien, he's been there before, and he has the practical knowledge and everything else to know that this is actually a good idea, whereas Boromir just has legends that he's heard in Gondor about the Lady of the Wood and whatever. But as they go down, he's wrestling with this whole idea of how do I do what I'm supposed to do here, especially after Boromir dies, but even before that, he wants to stay with Frodo because he feels responsible for him, but he also feels called to go to Minas Tirith, and he's trying to figure out how do I resolve this tension. And you don't get the sense that he has just this 
intuition or inspiration or whatever of this is the way I ought to go. It's I have this problem. I have two things that I feel like I need to do and I don't know how to choose between them. And he's trying to do it with his own mind. The switching point for all of this seems to be after Boromir has died and he lays it on Aragorn to go and save Minas Tirith and then he discovers that Frodo and Sam have already left with the boats, seemingly, and Merry and Pippin have been taken by the Urukai, which he doesn't realize at first because Boromir just says that, you know, orcs took the little ones. He's not clear who those are, but then he sees that one of the boats is gone and one of the packs is Sam's and he's like, okay, I, I figured out what happens here. And he's like, okay, now I know, probably, Merry and Pippin have been taken, you know, west by the, the orcs. Frodo and Sam have gone east over the river. He has all these facts in his background that he can use to make his decision. But when he makes the decision to follow Merry and Pippin, he very interestingly chooses a phrase which reminds us of Gandalf. And that phrase is, my heart speaks clearly at last. He has now been, you know, informed in some sense beyond merely having the facts at his disposal, seemingly, that the way he has to go is toward Merry and Pippin and not toward Frodo and Sam. And certainly you could say that this is really not him thinking in the same way as Gandalf, because Gandalf seems to think this way all the time without necessarily needing any kind of particular factual basis for that kind of thinking, whereas here Aragorn clearly does have it. And not only does he have facts at his disposal, but those facts do seem to kind of inform his decision, because Frodo has chosen to go off alone, and so Aragorn is respecting that choice, whereas he also knows that he does owe a duty to rescue Merry and Pippin, and so in that sense, him saying his heart speaks clearly at last doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that Gandalf frequently means. It it means something similar, at least, but it might mean something more like my, you know, the sum total of, like, my reason, my emotional, whatever, you know, all these different things that can play into decision-making can be summed up as the heart in some way. That, in some sense, may be what Aragorn is saying, is like, all the things that I have competing are all kind of united now. Like, my reason, my, you know, emotional-based desires to either go to Minas Tirith or follow Frodo, whatever they are, all of that is now on one page, and it's to go after Merry and Pippin. So, after this point, Aragorn starts thinking more like what Gandalf does, and he starts acting more like what Gandalf does. After this point, we do not really see Aragorn saying things like, alright, here's the, you know, the problem, here's what all the facts are, and here's my reasoned solution that will take care of all the facts and the problems to create whatever outcome I want. We don't really see him do that again. We do see him behaving a lot more like the really awesome Aragorn that we all know and love from the books, which is regrettably missing from most of the movie adaptations. Uh, and a good example of this is when he meets Eomer for the first time, and he has this really great moment that I love where he, you know, says, you know, they're arguing about what they're going to do, and Eomer kind of implies that, you know, 
if you're chasing orcs with just three, you're kind of not in a good position to do anything. And Aragorn says, I'm not weaponless, and he draws his sword really suddenly and gives this speech, which I just love about how he is, you know, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, he's the LSR, and he's, you know, the all, heir of Elendil and all this other stuff. I don't remember the exact lines that he speaks, but he is, it's like him being epic in the moment. And he's basically revealing who he is and trying to just use sheer awe kind of in his uh, approach with Aomer to be like, look, you can either help me or you can get out of my way. <laughs> and if you don't get out of my way, things are going to go badly for you anyway. So uh, he starts acting more like this commanding figure rather than this doubt-ridden person who's constantly trying to figure out how do I do this without screwing up. He is now very clear in his purpose. He knows what he needs to do, and he's on a mission. He's totally on board with it. So he follows Merry and Pippin, and in the course of that, he also has these conversations with Legolas and Gimli, and they're talking about, is there any hope? And he's like, well, it doesn't really matter. We've got to do it anyway. And that's very much kind of an Estelle-based type of thinking, even though he's not expressing Estelle in the sense that he's saying... I think that we're going to find them because I just trust that we will. That's not really how Estelle works anyway. But he is saying our duty is what it is, whether or not we have a reason to think it's going to turn out well in the end. So it's definitely, in that sense, a kind of rejection of reliance on mere Omdir. So beyond that, of course, we you know he eventually does find you know the the pyre where they burned all the orcs and they find clues about Merry and Pippin's whereabouts that they had gone into the forest and all this. So the, what Estelle he might've had has actually been rewarded and any Omdir he had as well might've been rewarded. He meets up with Gandalf, of course, and they go to Edoras and he's now following Gandalf in a full throated, you know, just he's going to do whatever Gandalf wants to do. And, one of the best expressions of this is at one point where he says, you know, there's the nine, but we have one who is mightier than all of them. He's the white rider, and we'll follow him wherever he goes. When, of course, we come to the Battle of Helm's Deep and all the discussion leading up to that, he is also very much a more Estelle-minded individual as well, because Theoden starts to have some doubts about the whole thing, because when he rode out with Gandalf... He was very, very uplifted about, you know, everything because he had just been cured of all the mental poisoning that Grima had been doing for who knows how long. And he rode out, and then when they're on their way to go meet the army that's already at the Fords of Eisen to assist them in the defense, they found out that that army had been routed, and now they're going to hold up in Helm's Deep where they at least have more defense. And Theoden says something to the effect that the Council of Gandalf doesn't seem so good right now. <laughs> and Aragorn's like, don't, don't, you know, don't put down the Council of Gandalf just yet. Wait till the end. So he is definitely starting to think in terms of, Gandalf says it, it's probably a good idea. And he is, you know, very much thinking in terms of what Gandalf says to do is probably a good idea, even if it doesn't seem like it in the moment. And this is actually echoing something that was said in Lothlorien, because Galadriel said, you know, don't don't knock Gandalf's 
counsel either. You know, she didn't put it that way. She said, needless were none of the deeds in Gandalf in life. We do not yet know his full purpose. But the idea is very similar there. It's like he had his reasons, even if they were not, you know, things that you could put down on paper in a, you know, pro and con column. He knows what he's doing. He had a reason for doing these things, and we should trust in his wisdom. You know, that's kind of what she's implying. And Aragorn has now learned that lesson. And he is trusting that Gandalf is going to return and that everything is going to, you know, kind of go all right in the end. And that's not to say that Aragorn necessarily expects to come out of the whole ordeal alive, but he at least trusts that something about the situation is going to pan out. So, after the Battle of Helm's Deep, of course, then he goes and he gets the message carried by Halbarad and the Sons of Elrond saying, you know, don't forget the Paths of the Dead. And then he ends up taking the Paths of the Dead after he looks in the Palantir. Now, all of that activity is very much more on the Estelle side of the scale, I would say, too. Aragorn can kind of give reasons why he does the things that he does. He uses the Palantir for information-gathering purposes, and he has his reasons for thinking that he will be able to use it in Sauron's despite, and he tells those reasons, but there's a lot of Estelle in the reasoning if you know where to look for it, because what he says about it is, the right was certainly mine to use it, and I trusted that my strength was great enough, and it was, barely. So he's trusting in his own strength, but he's also trusting that the right to use it is a factor in play. And in a long section about the Palantiri in Unfinished Tales, Tolkien will say things like, the use of them is, in, in part based on who has the right to use them, and therefore Aragorn, even though he is not as powerful as Sauron, has a legitimate right to the Palantiri, and therefore can use them against Sauron's will if he wants. So that's kind of explained outside the context of the Lord of the Rings, but that's useful background to that whole thing. Aragorn might might have known about this, he might not have. It seems like he does have it in the back of his mind, but that is still a trusting thing. It's like, has that ever been tested? Has has anybody actually gone and said, you know what? Hey, you, page boy, go try to use the Palantir, and I'm going to, as the king, you know, try to prevent you from using it the way I want you to because, you know, I just want to test whether actually this whole theory works. I doubt it. I mean, the only test that we probably could look to would be Saruman, but in Saruman's case, he gets entrapped by Sauron, who is mightier, and neither of them have the right to use it. So, uh, it's not really clear exactly who, you know, who should come out on top on that one. So, the whole idea that Aragorn is relying on, A, his right to use it, and B, his own strength, is a very trust-based way of thinking. He's not merely looking at data and coming up with a mathematical solution. Going through the paths of the dead is also a very trust-based thing because now he's trusting a prophecy that was given ages ago by Malbeth the Seer and he is trusting that this prophecy is about, you know, him going through the paths of the dead because like many prophecies like the one about how the witch king will meet his end 
tend to be ambiguous and not 100% clear. So it's not obvious that there's no other scenario in which this prophecy could be fulfilled in a way that meets all its terms other than Aragorn going through the paths of the dead himself. It seems fairly clear in the context of this story that that's what it's about, and Aragorn is trusting that in his own mind, but it is a trust thing. I mean, first of all, you've got to trust that the seer who gave the prophecy was legitimately giving a real prophecy that was inspired by, you know, Eru Iluvatar or Manwe or whoever it is. But he has to trust that going through the paths of the dead, and he especially has to trust it when he sees a body laying there that looked like it was clawing at a door trying to get out. So, you know, the paths of the dead are known to be a place where people go and do not come back. <laughs> That's just a thing. So he has to trust that, A, he's Isildur's heir, and as Isildur's heir, has the right to command this army, and B, that they aren't just going to kill him for funsies anyway, and C, that that's what this prophecy is basically telling him. And we know that this is not an easy decision to make, because Gimli, who, you know, right, kind of rebukes himself for this whole thing, complains about how an elf is more willing to go underground than he is. Because Gimli is mortally terrified of even setting foot in the door. It's that frightening. And we get other things about how scary the paths of the dead are. Point being, though, the paths of the dead decision is extremely trust-based. It is, there's like no rational reason to do it at all. Which is why Eowyn begs him not to go. All the data in the world seem to talk against it, other than Malbeth's prophecy, which is a singular data point against it, and Aragorn also comes up with the additional data point that this is the only road that's fast enough. So we're still, you know, we're still getting kind of like a Gandalf argument in favor of going to Moria type thing, and that was Gandalf's most Omdir-like argument ever. After this, of course, we get the final debate of the captains where Gandalf basically says, you have two options. You can sit here and try to endure siege after siege after siege, or you can go knock on Sauron's door and probably get killed, but at least give the ring bearer a chance to finish his job. Now, the Omdir solution would clearly be we're just going to sit back and hope Frodo makes it and just endure siege after siege because that's our best shot of surviving. That's not what Aragorn does, of course. Aragorn takes the very Estelle-based approach of saying, yep, we're going to do what Gandalf says. In fact, he says something along the lines of let no one doubt Gandalf's counsel anymore. He is fully on board. He is Estelle and trust and hope in Gandalf himself. He has trust and hope in the overall plan, which he was always on board with, but, you know, things developed over time that, you know, may have made it look more silly even than it looked before. So he is now fully on board with this idea of getting the Estelle approach and, and taking that to its max, and that involves him basically saying... I'm going to disregard my personal safety and the personal safety of thousands of Gondorians and Rohirrim. We're going to go ride up to the Black Gate and face untold hordes of, you know, orcs and trolls and goodness knows what else. 
just so that Frodo has the extra opportunity to make it to Mount Doom, which was already an extreme long shot before any of this ever happened. And so we see the kind of culmination of Aragorn's journey here going from a very practical-minded scout and leader to, at the end of the day, a king who is willing to kind of disregard all the logic in favor of trusting what he knows is the right thing to do, whether or not he can articulate exactly why. He has made his journey from the Boromir end of the spectrum to the Gandalf end of the spectrum. And on that note, it is interesting to to look at one of the final scenes that Aragorn has, and it's the final scene he has specifically with Gandalf, where he goes up into the mountainside with Gandalf and they find the sapling of the white tree. But one of the things that Aragorn will tell Gandalf is that I, you know, I really want you to stay because I would love to have you around to give me advice. So we can see that Aragorn is still not 100% comfortable doing all of the things on his own. He still likes to rely on Gandalf for wisdom. And I think one of the things this is pointing to is the fact that while Aragorn has grown, he knows that it has been a growing process and he may not realize how much he's grown. He met Gandalf years before and has always been good friends with him ever since then. And it's, I think what has happened is Aragorn, kind of in the way that a child grows up, imitating and learning from parents, Aragorn has learned from Gandalf and from his own experiences that were kind of set up by Gandalf, whether intentionally or not. Uh, I don't think Gandalf intended to die and leave Aragorn in command of a group that he was not really sure what to do with. Uh, But regardless, he relied a lot on Gandalf's advice before and has learned to think like Gandalf over the course of this story and like a young adult who maybe knows more than he realizes he knows, he still wants the parent around to help make decisions. And Gandalf is basically telling him in the scene, you're good. You have, you've made it. You are grown up. You are ready to go. And that's kind of a patronizing way of putting it that Gandalf doesn't say. Because, of course, Aragorn is 87. He is fully grown up. He knows what he's doing. Uh, but Gandalf basically tells him, you don't need my counsel anymore. You're fine. And I think that is a, I think that whole scene reflects an understanding on Aragorn's part that the Gandalf advice was always kind of the better half of what Aragorn's thinking process was. He doesn't put it in those terms, obviously, but I think what he's realizing is, to the extent that I had ideas that were different and and were arrived at in different ways, those were often mistakes, like trying to go over Karadhras, trying to figure out how I'm going to solve this split between do I go with Frodo or do I go back to Minas Tirith with Boromir. What he realizes in the story is that Gandalf is always right, (laughs) sort of. Uh, And at least the way that Gandalf thinks is the better way to think. And so he's recognizing that, and he knows that he is not as perfectly attuned to that as Gandalf is, and that's why he wants him around as a counselor. And Gandalf is basically saying, you're, you're in a perfect position to do this on your own. You are ready. 
which is what Gandalf will also tell the hobbits when he parts with them before they return to the Shire. Gandalf tells the hobbits specifically, he doesn't tell this to Aragorn, but he tells the hobbits specifically, you've grown up, and part of this whole experience was so that you would be ready for other challenges, which he doesn't tell them what that is, but it's the scouring of the Shire. But you can imagine that he's thinking the same thing with Aragorn, this whole journey has been about making you the person you need to be so that you can be a king in the best possible way. And Aragorn has indeed become that kind of man through the course of the story. So that is my look at Aragorn's development from a Boromir-type who is relying much more on Omdir-type hope to a Gandalf-type who is relying much more on Estelle-type hope. And I hope you found this interesting. Uh, it, again, if you haven't seen my original video on Omdir and Estelle, it, it gives you a pretty good background and it also looks at a bunch of different characters briefly in terms of how they think on that Omdir and Estelle spectrum. But this is a much more developed look at just one character who moves from one end of that spectrum to the other through the course of the story. And I think it's worth looking at because it is this is one of the big themes in a lot of Tolkien's work, this idea of trust and faith, because, of course, he was a Christian. There's no, you know, you, there's no way around that being a big thing that he's going to think is important. So I hope you enjoyed this look at Aragorn's journey from one end of the spectrum to the other. If you did, please do give a thumbs up, share the video around, check out all my uh, other platform links, my social links below. I don't call it X, I still call it Twitter, but over there I do drop Tolkien-related trivia questions on a frequent basis. And, of course, you could support the channel on Patreon or Player or wherever. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye. No